1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast, uh, channel Environmental Studies. Uh, my name is Sean Munger. I'm an uh, author, historian, teacher, and podcaster. Um, and I have a background... Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast, uh, channel Environmental Studies. Uh, My name is Sean Munger. I'm an author, historian, teacher, and podcaster. Um, And I have a background in environmental history, and I'm going to be doing some environmental history interviews on this channel. In addition to this, I also have my own podcast, not associated with New Books Network. It's called Second Decade. It's about the 18 teens. Um, that's available on iTunes and at uh, the show's website, seconddecade.net. Uh, but here on this channel, uh, I've got some really fascinating environmental history material coming up. And my first guest uh, I've just done an interview with uh, Ryan Fisher of University of Wisconsin and his, about his book Cattle Colonialism an Environmental History of the Conquest of California and Hawaii. This is a wonderful book it just came out in paperback and I uh, have had a delightful time talking to Dr. Fisher about his book and about how particularly cows changed the world, at least the world of California and Hawaii in the early part of the 19th century. So I think you'll enjoy it. It's a fantastic book. It's out from University of North Carolina Press. And um, I think anyone with an interest in environmental history is really going to get a lot out of this book. Uh, So let's get started with uh, the interview with Ryan Fisher. It's a lot of fun. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network, uh, channel Environmental Studies. Uh, I'm Sean Munger. I'm new to this channel. Uh, I'm an author, historian, teacher, and podcaster. Uh, I have a podcast in addition to this one. It's called a historical podcast. It's called Second Decade about the 18 teens. That's going to be separate than this. Uh, But this is my first interview for the New Books Network, and uh, I would like on this channel to get into some environmental history. I have a a degree in environmental history and find it very fascinating. And my first guest for this show is uh, Ryan Fisher, and he is assistant professor of history at the University of Wisconsin, uh, River Falls. And he's written this uh, really interesting book that we're going to talk about today. And it's called Cattle Colonialism, an Environmental History of the Conquest of California and Hawaii. Uh, I found this a really, really fascinating book. Uh, I'm very interested in the history of Hawaii, which is just really uh, not a lot of people know about it. And it's amazing. Um, So we're going to talk about Hawaiian cowboys, of all things. Um, But it's a really great book, and I really highly recommend it. So. here is uh, here is Ryan. Hello, how are you? Hello hi Hi, Good Thank. For me. Sure, sure. thanks very much for, for joining us. Um, so I, uh, I wonder if you can just kind of talk a little bit about yourself, uh, you know where you went to school, that kind of thing, and how you became interested in environmental history in general and California and Hawaii in particular.
0: Yeah, well, uh, I, I've i always been interested in history, um, even when I was a little kid. Uh, so I, I always kind of knew I wanted to, to go down the grad school path. Uh, as an undergrad at Washington University uh, in St. Louis, I had uh, an environmental history seminar with uh, a great environmental historian named Canaveria Valentius oh. uh, who in Boston now um, uh, and, uh, it was an amazing seminar and, uh, you know, I think the second week <laughs> of that seminar, I said, this is what I want to do. This is my, my history. I think it was Changes in the Land, the Cronin book. Ah. And that kind of Ah. So, um, I became really interested in, in, um, ecological change as a part of history, uh, and the way that, uh, people, Adapt to that change and the, the culture they create around that change. Um, and especially sort of uh, cases where you have different groups of people colliding with different environmental agendas and ideas about the environment. Uh, that was something that especially interested me. Uh, so then I went to the University of California, Davis uh, and worked with Louis Warren, who's a great environmental historian there. Uh, and a little bit with Alan Taylor as well. Uh and uh I also got at uh at Davis um, a fellowship from the National Science Foundation dealing with biological invasions, uh which was a great graduate training program they offered that uh I was kind of uh put into the to the uh ecology department uh basically the population biology department there. Uh, to take seminars and to work on projects, and so uh, it fit really well with my interest about these you know, moving organisms and changing ecologies and how people adapt to all that. Uh, and then I had to come up with a project, which is something that uh, I didn't really have till the end of my first year. Uh, I knew I was uh, interested in California, but, uh, but uh, you know that was sort of uh, where I. Uh, uh, that's where my interests really lie in those those big changes that were happening.
1: Great. Uh yeah, you mentioned uh Conoveri Valentius. She's she's wonderful. Um I reviewed her book about the uh the uh New Madrid earthquakes a couple of years ago. Uh, and I also kind of got, got bitten by the bug with with her book on uh health of the country because I've studied the nineteen early nineteenth century and she's just wonderful. Yeah. Really, really wonderful. Yeah, she was
0: working on that book uh,
1: when she was teaching her
0: seminar. Just great research, and uh, also, you know, she kind of let us in a little bit on her editing process, and uh, and that was also really cool. So it was a great experience as, a, as an undergrad. Yeah,
1: that's really terrific. It's, it's funny, I haven't actually met her in person But I was doing research at uh, Huntington Library, which I believe you you also did, uh, were there for a while. Uh, And I found a note from her in a a source that I was looking at a folder or whatever that, you know, just talking about, oh, this page is missing or something like that. And it had a date on it and and her signature. And I'm like, oh, I I know exactly what book she was working on when she wrote this note. So (laughs) it's kind of funny. Okay, so uh, well, why don't you tell us about uh, cattle colonialism and why you wrote the book and just what, uh, what you want us to know about it? Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: yeah, so uh, as I was saying, I, I kind of uh, had to search for a project uh, that first couple of years of grad school, really the first year of grad school. Uh, and again, I, I knew that California was really interesting. And it started out as, as a really, really a California project and probably something involving ranching in California, because I knew that cattle had transformed California so dramatically. And I was looking for, I guess, a new hook uh, on that. Uh, and uh, I just read in passing um, something about cattle being taken from California and moved to Hawaii. Uh, and I didn't know anything really about Hawaiian ranching. Uh, which uh, you know I, I kind of wish uh, I wish I had known more about this before I started it, it, I, it's unfortunate I think that that more people don't know about this and you know people can take trips to Hawaii and still have no uh, encounters with this really big part of, of Hawaiian history it's it's branching history uh, so it uh, it really intrigued me that there was this uh, component to Hawaii that I didn't know a lot about. Uh, And uh, I was like kind of uh, discovering new things in history. Uh, So uh, I kind of took on this. uh, It made it a little bit harder because I didn't have a lot of background in Hawaiian history. But I took that on because it was so exciting to get exposed to that new element. Uh, And so it started out with this um, looking at how uh ranching developed in California and then how it moved to Hawaii. But as I did a little research, I began to see how connected these two regions were and that it wasn't just those initial cattle going from California to Hawaii. But these two regions were really uh, very closely tied together and cows were the the element that that made that connection early on. Uh, And so exploring that connection uh, intrigued me. And then also the parallels, and I'll I'll probably talk about some of those as we go, uh, but the parallels that developed between the two regions also I thought were really revealing that um, there seemed to be a pattern to how uh, cattle were brought into these areas, how they, expanded in these areas, and then the legal and economic and cultural changes that came along with the expansion of cattle into these areas. So seeing all those parallels and all those connections um, really got me excited. And so uh, that's when I, uh, I knew I had a pretty uh, decent project. Uh, and then it was kind of researching and <laughs> writing after that.
1: That's great. Um- it seems like there, I mean, I hadn't heard of any other, uh, you know, work that really, you talked about the connection between California and Hawaii, which is what I found so fascinating about the book. Uh, is there, what was the state of prior research on this before you got to this? Uh,
0: there were, so, uh, there were some popular histories. Uh, there is a, a um, a real fascination in Hawaii, I think, uh, among people who live in Hawaii in the history of the ranching industry there, so there have been uh, a few popular histories uh, there's a a veterinarian who used to work on on one of the big ranches, the Parker ranch who 's written a series of histories about this, um, but none of them took a very um, very strong uh, academic, uh, research stance on it. There had, there were a uh, few books on ranching frontiers that would always cover Hawaii. So that was sort of the main, uh, economic background, or not economic background, academic background, uh, as far as research is concerned. These big histories like Richard Slotta's, um, these big histories of, uh, branching frontiers, uh, that would include Hawaii. But, uh, I don't, uh, I don't think I'm hoping I'm not missing something big in my my uh, memory here, but there hadn't really been any books that had focused on the connections between California and Hawaii as far as cattle ranching or uh,
1: ranching history in Hawaii from the academic standpoint. Hmm. So this was kind of un- untrammeled ground then. Yeah, yeah, there. Were,
0: uh, you know, occasionally I would find an old article uh, in a Hawaiian history journal that uh, covered some some good information and had great research. Uh, but yeah, there hadn't really been a lot of uh, focus
1: uh, attention to. It. I love how I was struck at the very beginning by just the the image of the Hawaiian cowboy, which is something that you don't expect. I mean, you start the book with. Uh, I'm probably not going to pronounce his name right. Ikua Purdy. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I think that's uh, pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, I, I, and, and then quickly you draw parallels between the Hawaiian cowboys of the 19th century and then the vaqueros in, uh, in California. Um, I, do you want to talk about that and just kind of maybe the, just the image of the, of the cowboy as it works its way through, through this history? There's a lot of cowboys in here, and it's really fascinating. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, the Hawaiian cowboys are called Paniolo, uh, which even their name connects to this uh, California, to these California roots, because Paniolo is probably a Hawaiianization of Espanol. Uh, because it was the Spaniards who brought over these traditions, uh, but the Paniolo, uh, as I was saying, they are kind of a big deal in Hawaii. Uh, and uh, if you you know if you've been to Hawaii as a tourist, I think you could easily wander around Waikiki and Maui and uh, not have much contact with the uh, with the ranching history of the islands. But uh, people in Hawaii, uh, I think it is a, a, a really clear image in their mind of their history, uh, these cowboys. And once I got started, I, I would always run into to Paniolo and the children of Paniolo. Uh, it turned out that one of my mom's oldest friends was the daughter of a Paniolo. Uh, so they're definitely uh, a, a real presence. I'd run into people in the archives and tell them my research. And they say, oh, my dad was a Paniolo. Uh, so, this figure of the Hawaiian cowboy—it uh, is um, a part of Hawaiian history. It's a part of history that a lot of Hawaiians are really proud of, um, and it, it is also—it um, is a, uh, a an image, a, a archetype that has been very multiracial in Hawaiian history. So, I in my time period before the 1850s, I'm mostly talking about Native Hawaiians. Paniolo but eventually there are Japanese Paniolo and Filipino Paniolo and uh, so on and so forth um, so it's something that a lot of people feel a connection to uh, so it was that image though that really got me um, excited initially you know when I started to think about Hawaiian ranching uh, and I saw this um, this idea of the Hawaiian uh, cowboy because it was it Again, it didn't entirely fit the image of Hawaii. It also didn't fit the image of ecological change as we often talk about it. And the the landmark work that was really sort of a springboard for me and a lot of my thinking was well, really two books by Alfred Crosby: <laughs> The Columbian Exchange and Ecological Imperialism. And both of these uh, have this idea uh, which is, Fascinating and illuminates a lot um, this idea that Europeans bring over uh, old world organisms, animals, plants and diseases. And that completely transforms the areas that Europeans colonize uh, and uh, often at the expense of indigenous people. And that's one of the things that I thought was fascinating about the Paniolo image is that. These are um, indigenous people who are using these cattle uh, and participating in uh, managing the cattle population. So it it seemed like a real um, something that Alfred Crosby hadn't really talked about or thought of that indigenous people often are are making good use of uh, these animals. And there's a little bit of that uh, in... The historiography. There's a little bit about. Well, there's a lot actually about Indians and horses, uh, but there wasn't nearly as much about uh, Indigenous people and cattle. Uh, so yeah, that image really fascinated me. And you do have some really famous figures like a uh, who uh, wins a rodeo competition, uh, a national rodeo competition in Wyoming uh, in the early 1900s. Uh, and so that that kind of image, um, it's, it's a, it is a iconic figure uh, with a sort of different twist to it. And I thought that was really interesting. uh, And it's, it's kind of unfortunate that we do have a few um, famous Paniolo, indigenous uh, Paniolo uh, Native Hawaiians who uh, participated in this that we can name and have a real uh, uh, iconic uh, uh, perception in Hawaii. You know, there's a statue to Akua Purdy on the Big Island uh, that I have a picture of in my book. Uh, it's unfortunate that we don't really have the same with the California Indian vaqueros. Uh, and then that, you know, began to fascinate me. Who are, who are these people? Uh, why do they not get as much attention? Uh, and uh, so exploring that part as well uh, was something I, I wanted to do. Who, who were the Indian vaqueros in California, uh, there was, again, this parallel idea happening in California of indigenous people uh, managing, using cattle, learning this uh, pretty skilled um, labor set to do this work. Uh, and so all of that uh, really intrigued me.
1: The the book really, I mean, it's two-faceted fa- two in that It's really about kind of the trajectory of cattle in these societies and then the changes that those brought. But but you do really keep the focus on people, too. And that's very interesting. Um, For the people who uh, have not read the book, uh, it seems a pretty key place to start is how did how did cows get to these places in the first place? How and why both California and Hawaii?
0: Uh, Yeah, so uh, the Europeans uh, introduced cattle to both regions and they they did so uh, very purposefully and uh, They going back to that Alfred Crosby argument that uh, a lot of European colonialism was Backed up by these different organisms. They brought with them. Uh, I think that you can show that very clearly in California and Hawaii. So in 1769, the Spanish colonize uh, what we call California and what they call Alta California. Uh, this is, if you're from California, certainly this is kind of a famous story. You have the Franciscan missionaries coming in to start missions among the Indians led by Penipa Uh But they bring cattle with them and uh, it is absolutely crucial. That they have these cattle that's going to be um, a major food source for them uh, that they don't have to uh, spend a lot of intensive labor on. They can let the cattle loose on uh, the grasses of California and those cow can turn that grass into food for the colonizers. Uh, so right from the beginning, uh, they're driving herds of cattle to California. Uh okay. There's, it would, it would almost make more sense for them to colonize by, uh, by the sea, by ships, because they have, uh, a much stronger sort of maritime connection from the west coast of, of Mexico to California. But they do this overland drive because they really need those cattle. So it's essential to the colonizing effort in California. Uh, and then, uh, in Hawaii, you have Europeans, um, Encountering Hawaiians with Captain Cook, again, fairly famous story uh, in the 1770s, Captain Cook uh, finds Hawaii, discovers Hawaii, uh, at least as far as Europeans are concerned, uh, and ends up dying in Hawaii. Um, but one of uh, the men on Cook's mission is Captain uh, Vancouver, and Vancouver uh, returns to Hawaii in 1793 and really feels that it's essential to bring cattle with uh, and so it's actually Vancouver who goes to California to pick up cattle, negotiates with the uh Franciscan missionaries there to uh obtain some of these cattle, and then uh ships them off to Hawaii at, you know, some uh some expense because uh the resources on a ship uh ocean going ship are limited but he's willing to have the, the water and the hay that those cattle need because, again, he feels like this is something that's going to be crucial to the, the future of uh, British contact with Hawaii. Having um, a, a population of cattle in Hawaii will turn this into a provisioning station, which will uh, help the British Navy, help other British merchants uh, utilize Hawaii to their advantage. Uh, although he does also establish it uh, with some thought towards how the indigenous people can benefit from that as well. Uh, so he really does sort of sell it to uh, Kamehameha, who is the king of Hawaii when uh, when Vancouver arrives. He's actually uh, working to unify the islands under his control. Uh, Vancouver works hard to convince Kamehameha that these animals are going to be useful to the Hawaiians, that this is going to be a commodity that the Hawaiians can trade with the Europeans. So it's not entirely imposed upon Hawaiians. It is um, a deal that Vancouver makes to introduce these animals to Hawaii. But again, I think there's some of the same uh, basic beliefs that uh, this animal will undergird the European colonialism.
1: Hmm. Hmm. i found myself kind of yeah wondering about the the motives of them i mean clearly they the europeans when they came had some sense of uh cultural superiority and i I was interested in the idea of them using cattle to kind whether consciously or unconsciously to kind of reinforce that superiority
0: yeah and that is something i talk about a little bit in the book that um in this comes from uh, some of the work of Harriet Ritvo uh, that Europeans uh, during this age do have a real sense that uh, their domestic animals are superior to the rest of the world, and, and having domestic animals uh, makes them more civilized. And so there is a real link between uh, these animals and civilization. And so going back to the, the Franciscan missions in California, uh getting the Indians to manage the cattle in the missions it's not just something that's gonna benefit the Spanish colonizers who are uh, putting some of the work uh some of the labor onto the indigenous population uh of their own food production uh but there's also this belief uh, that it will uh transform the Indians and make them more civilized actually learn this type of labor. Uh, And so I I do think there's definitely that, that civilizing ideology
1: that comes with the animal. Yeah, that's so interesting. And and I think it is an interesting riff. I've I've read the Crosby, uh, at least one of the Crosby books that you talked about um, ecological imperialism, which I've, I've used in classes I've taught I, one of the most interesting things i think about that book is the it kind of the inadvertent colonization like the his whole chapter on weeds for example was so fascinating uh but the you know what you're describing really is much more of a conscious process and, and a designed process and i think a lot of people haven't really thought about that so i think that's a really interesting yeah point.
0: i think uh, i think the the livestock especially there's a more conscious idea about they're, they're not thinking about the weeds as much or they're certainly not thinking about the diseases because they don't understand germs. Um, but the livestock, I think, are much more intentional and have, uh, I think, a special place in European colonialism. Uh, at the same time, I do think there are unintended consequences with livestock as well, uh, that the Europeans often. Uh, will sort of unleash these animals on on the local environment. Um, they often don't have the labor force necessary. They don't want to build fences. So they're not working too hard to control the animals. They let them run wild. Uh, and that often causes um, destruction, which weakens the indigenous people, which also aids European colonization efforts. So... Uh, There's some evidence um, of cattle causing uh, destruction to indigenous subsistence in California. There are Indians who complain that they can't gather the same seeds and nuts because the cattle are eating them all. Um, And then uh, there's an even clearer case in Hawaii uh, where there is uh, indigenous agriculture, uh, especially growing taro, as the sort of staple crop, and there's a lot of evidence of cattle uh, running into Hawaiian fields and just uh, destroying all the crops, which in a way, you know, in the long run, it in, uh, ends up helping the colonization efforts, because it weakens some of that uh, indigenous sovereignty.
1: Hmm. Yeah, my, my next question was going to be how the, uh, how the cows changed both of these landscapes. I, I think we're, we're, we're started on that, but... I, yeah, I was inter- interested that uh, it seems like they almost went, went feral in Hawaii, uh, both naturally and then there was a law against killing them, wasn't there?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so part of Vancouver's negotiations with Kamehameha is he demands a uh, kapu or a taboo on killing the cattle. And Vancouver's idea is that this will help the animals get established in Hawaii. So um, the sources differ a little bit whether it's ten or twenty years. Um, uh, I think it's ten, uh, but uh, for a, a long period there, the cattle are allowed to breed, and they're no one's supposed to touch them. They become kind of sacred animals. Uh, they're uh, although it's very much by the fiat of, of of law, uh, because the king imposes this. There doesn't seem to be a, a sense that they're sacred, but they are um, untouchable. Uh, mm-hmm. And so, it's not like, it's it's not deep like deep in India.
1: Life. Sorry, it's, it's not like India where it's a it's a it's a cultural
0: it's a right, it's a exactly. cultural
1: reverence. Yeah,
0: exactly. There's no yeah. There's no sense of them as, uh, or at least there doesn't seem to be any sense of them as sacred. It, there is a sense that this is a uh, a command from the king. Uh, but once they uh, once they have that legal prohibition, the population expands very quickly, uh, and we have evidence that um, there are no predators uh, in Hawaii. So we have evidence that they are just growing uh, at a tremendous rate, uh, and so there are uh, thousands of them by the early 1800s, a couple of decades, uh, and so. They are running wild, uh, sometimes running through people's crops, like I said. Uh, and they do go feral. I and mean, it's worth mentioning, uh, we're talking about, uh, longhorn, longhorn cattle here. So, uh, these are cattle that to start with are not your, uh, docile modern breeds. Uh, they're already kind of a, a tougher, more independent breed. Uh, the types of animals that you don't, you really don't want to, uh, have them angry at you. Uh, and so there are stories of uh, Hawaiians trying to capture the animals, to sell them to ships, and Hawaiians getting killed in that process. Uh, so they they really are uh, feral. Uh, they really are wild and dangerous animals uh, in Hawaii. Uh, and so they're a, a possible resource to use uh, in Hawaii, but they're also a threat
1: to uh, to the native Hawaiians. So maybe you can talk a a bit more about the connections between California and Hawaii. That was, I I was so fascinated by the story in each place, but I was even more interested in the connections between them. And it it seems like you highlighted that really well. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, the, uh, the hide and tallow trade becomes the the focus of these connections, and this is a fairly big business in the region in the eighteen twenties and thirties, uh, and really through the eighteen forties. Uh, it's the primary business of California, and I would also say it's the primary business in Hawaii in the thirties and forties. Uh, and this is the the trade of, of hides, which are used to make leather goods, uh, and then tallow, which is mostly used to make candles. Uh, and it's not just California and Hawaii that are connected, but it really creates this very broad um, set of connections across the Pacific world. So, for instance, a lot of the tallow from California and Hawaii is going to make candles that are going to be used to uh, in the silver mines of Potosi in Peru. Uh, so and then a lot of the leather's going to New England or England where there's a lot of manufacturing of leather. So there are these really broad connections throughout the Pacific and beyond the Pacific that are based on people uh harvesting the resources of these growing herds of feral animals in California white. Uh, and this is a, a set of businesses are set up to to really exploit these animals uh, on the international markets um, in right after the the Napoleonic Wars, so in that sort of post Napoleonic Wars, post War of eighteen twelve, calm. A bunch of businesses go in, uh, especially to the newly independent Latin American nations, uh, which are all gaining their independence by eighteen twenty eighteen twenty one.
1: So businesses go
0: in from New England and England, and uh, they go in to begin to buy these animals from Spanish missionaries in, in California who are using Indian labor in the missions. And then from the the chiefs in Hawaii, uh, the alii, which is the chiefly class in Hawaii, are selling a lot of the Hawaiian cows uh, uh, for in this big growing international market. Uh, and so it is this, it's this international connection, but a lot of the businesses, uh, that are working to harvest the animals in California and Hawaii end up developing very close ties to each other. So you have this constant flow back and forth. Uh, California in really until the gold rush, uh, and even, even during a lot of the gold rush is really a maritime province. It doesn't have a lot of land connections. It doesn't have land connections to uh, Mexico, really. It doesn't have land connections to the eastern United States. So a lot of the a lot of the business coming out of California uh, is conducted um, along the coast and um, conducted by sea, and it becomes kind of a circuit for uh, people to go to San Francisco. San Diego, Monterey, in California, and then stop in Honolulu, and so that helps to forge a lot of these business ties in the high and power industry. Uh, and again, that's all underwritten by this indigenous labor.
1: Hmm. Ah, that's really interesting. I on my other podcast, I, which is about the eighteen teens, I did an episode on Hawaii, and one of the things that I emphasized was that it really was kind of a, a especially in that decade, becoming kind of a waypoint between, uh, uh, you know, trans-Pacific trade, really, um, from China to, uh, I was focusing mostly on connections to Eastern United States, but that's so interesting that California was wired into that that network as well. And that's something that you don't really think, think about a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, uh, I think I... I... Make a, a bit of a reference to California being almost like an island during this time period, uh, and it, it does have some of those uh, some of those properties, uh, and, and it is, I think, very much a, a network that links those two. Uh, Hawaii. Uh, there's a, a great historian of the Pacific named David Egler, uh, and he talks about the different trade routes with the Pacific, including the China trade, um, and Hawaii is a way station on the all. And, you know, if you look at the map of the Pacific, uh, you can see why, because Hawaii is right there in the middle. Um, but uh, one of the problems that Hawaii has is everyone's stopping by, but Hawaii needs something that they can sell on this this market that they're a part of. And initially they sell sandalwood, which is valuable in China, but they very quickly um, deforest their sandalwood uh, resources. Uh, And so then beef and hides and tallow become really the the resource they have to offer.
1: Um, So how did how did cows change the people? Uh, We've talked a lot about the land and the economies, but how do they change the people in these places? Uh, They
0: first of all, I think they uh, they change the, the labor of the people, especially as they become such valuable commodities. Uh, the indigenous people in, in both region increasingly find that their job is to take care of these animals. So uh, you have a move away from from a lot of traditional economies to this new ranching uh, labor system. Uh, and so that's a big change it, uh, in Hawaii. Um, I think there's a, a really clear shift um, not, not among all the Native Hawaiians, but, uh, many of them are forced to abandon agriculture, uh, because of the problems that cattle are causing. And so, uh, eventually, uh, becoming Paniolo is, is going to be their, their best choice. Uh, and so a lot of them are, uh, become these, these ranching laborers. Um, so, uh, I think there's a change in labor. I, I also think there are cultural changes that are harder to track. Um, but, uh, I, you definitely see cattle, uh, gaining more value as the indigenous people work with them more. Uh, and even though this is, in some ways, it's a, it's a survival, uh, decision, uh, to begin to work more with cattle, I also think that there are some pretty clear signs that Indigenous people see the value in these animals see that it uh, it can be very helpful. It can uh, be an extremely useful resource to have this animal that can convert grass
1: to food
0: and provide these commodities that are valuable on the international market. Uh, they don't require uh, a lot of labor, although you know, certainly they do require some. Uh, so, uh, so across, I think across the sort of average, uh, native Hawaiian or California Indian, uh, you have that, that change in labor. Uh, and then you also have changes, um, among the elites in Hawaii, uh, who are the ones who are, uh, benefiting the most from this trade, uh, who are using the cattle to expand their own resources and uh, buy all these valuable European goods. Um, But they also, um, I think, are changed by this process. They become more dependent on international markets. Uh, They, as they get involved in this trading, they sometimes find themselves spread thin uh, and deep in debt. Uh, So there are some negative changes there. But I I do think that they're, uh, in both regions, you can see indigenous people seeing value in the animals which is something that Crosby doesn't really talk about very much, Alfred Crosby. Um, One other way you can see that I think is that in both regions you have indigenous people participating in cattle rustling and um, this is especially true in California where at one point in the 1830s it really becomes a crisis that there's so much uh, raiding going on of the the uh, the interior Indians are raiding the coastal ranches and uh, taking a lot of horses but also taking a lot of cattle uh, and then taking them inland and it's a it's a major problem for the coastal uh, elites the colonizers the Spanish who are running the coast Um, so I think that's a case where you can see the California Indians seeing the
1: value in these animals and doing what it takes to obtain them. Hmm. One thing that that strikes me um, about this story that I found actually kind of refreshing is that this, this history, it's not really focused on uh, coming. I mean, so many of the histories of both Hawaii and California really start with the United States presence there, American presence there. And almost all of this story is over by the time Americans actually get, uh, you know, a, a strong foothold in both places. Um, so I, I just uh, I, I find that very, very interesting that uh, almost like kind of the, the cattle sort of prepared the way for ultimately American assimilation of both of these areas. I don't know if, if you had that sense as well.
0: Yeah, I I would, I would definitely agree with that. And I I really chose to end the book um with the ascendancy of the United States in both regions. Uh, because I I feel like the cattle story becomes less important after that. Um in both regions, you know, in California you have the gold rush uh when the United States comes in almost at exactly the same moment. Uh, And in Hawaii, you have a transition to sugar plantations, which strengthens the presence of the United States. And uh, so I I do think cattle kind of begin to lose their importance in the later, the latter half of the 1800s. They're both a big factor. Uh, They're still a big factor in both regions, but they lose their importance. But I think that's exactly right that they have prepared the way they have changed. The institutions in these places uh, they have in some ways uh, weakened uh, the indigenous cultures uh, but in other ways they have changed the indigenous people into the types of wage workers that the United States can use uh, in its own colonial efforts in both regions um, so I, I think that's exactly right that uh, cattle uh, prepare the way and then the United States kind of gets to benefit from uh, everything that has changed on in both regions uh, once they come in and really take over. Although you do, I guess, uh, I would also mention that there are a lot of American ranchers in Hawaii who, um, uh, the Americans sort of take over that industry uh, in the 1840s, 1850s. Uh, and you have, uh, Okua Purdy is actually, uh, the son, the half Hawaiian son of uh, uh, a, it's actually, I, I believe, an Irishman, but, uh, he works for John Palmer Parker, Parker, John Palmer Parker on the Parker Ranch, and Parker is from New England, so, uh, Americans, Americans also play a role in the development of the ranching industry, but the United States, government, when it gains sovereignty, it's already sort of, the cattle industry has already sort of done its transformations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So what, I don't know if, if, if that su- surprised you about, about this subject or, or your research, is there anything that, that in this story that like just really kind of upended your previous thinking or, or, or surprised you in some way?
0: the whole story in a way kind of surprised me. It was as I, as I kind of felt out the, the boundaries of the story, I was again, constantly surprised at how central cattle were to this whole region. The fact that the hide and tallow industry was dominant was really the biggest export in Hawaii at one point. Uh, that surprised me. Um, uh, one, one sort of little story that, uh, that really intrigued me uh, that maybe I can give you a more specific example of something that surprised me. Uh, there was this, um, there's a pirate who attacks California in the 18 teens uh, named Ippolito Bouchard. Uh, he's from uh, Argentina or he's out, working out of Argentina. Uh, and it's sort of a, a lot of California local historians will sort of talk about this incident. There's this pirate attack in the middle of the Latin American wars of independence. Uh, you don't really think about pirate attacks in California very much. Uh, but I, I started to look at this incident a little bit. And again, it was amazing how much it fit into the story I was telling. Uh, Bouchard, uh, he outfits his operation in Hawaii and he actually uses a uh, partially Hawaiian crew. Uh, and then he attacks California because in Hawaii, he hears about all of the, uh, the hide and Teller resources that the ranchers along the coast are hoarding. So it's interesting that these connections between Hawaii and California, they enable the attack. And then the attack itself is uh, Bouchard sending his men, including some of these Hawaiians that he's hired uh, to attack. And then the Spanish call on the Indian vaqueros to repulse the attack. They don't have enough guns. So they're using lassos that they would normally be using to manage the cattle to lasso some of these pirates. And uh, it's this kind of crazy story. It's it's an entertaining story. Uh, and, uh, not too many people get hurt even for a pirate attack. So uh, you can uh, have fun with it. Uh, but it has this, uh, it's all undergirded by the hide and industry. Uh, and so, it was, again, it was just surprising that everywhere I looked, if you're looking at California and Hawaii in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, it's, cattle are going to be uh, part of the story.
1: Hawaiian cowboys to Argentinian pirates, that's just such an interesting progression, and they're all connected. So fascinating. Uh, every book has a has a story about how it was created. I don't know if you have any anything about uh, stories just from your research or from you probably took some interesting trips to uh, to research this book.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I had to I had to research in Hawaii a fair amount. Uh, people would always make fun of me for my my research trips to Hawaii. Uh, <laughs> they all imagine I was sitting on the beach, which uh, I did a little bit on the weekends. Uh, but I was mostly in the libraries. Um, uh, but uh, I would go, I went to, uh, a couple of different islands. Um, the, there's, there was ranching on every island, uh, or at least I should say all eight of the main Hawaiian islands. Um, so it really did spread throughout the whole archipelago, uh, which was a good excuse to visit different islands. Um, so I think, you know, one of the, um, really interesting things was just driving, um, for instance, into the interior of Maui. And it's usually in the interior that a lot of the ranches are still around today. And so you drive into the uplands of Maui and uh, you can really see, you can still see all this ranching on this extremely touristy island. Uh, and I did the, the very touristy thing of driving up Mount Haleakala on Maui to see the sunrise. And then on the drive down, I, I had to pull over because there were a couple of longhorn cattle that were grazing in the field on the, on the road down. Uh, so yeah, just seeing the ranching that if you go to the Big Island, which I think is my favorite island, um, if you go, uh, to the slopes of Mauna Kea, um, you will see, uh, lots of the ranching industry. You, you know, you could, Imagine that you're in a sort of typical Western landscape, almost uh, in some of those areas. Um, so I think you know that was the most fascinating thing. It, w- it was nice to go to the beach after the d- after a day in the library or on the weekend. Um, but you know, one of the most fascinating things for me was just driving around the island and seeing how expensive uh, cattle ranching was on all of them
1: well we're uh we're getting toward the, toward the end of our time here, but uh, I'm curious and I'm, I'm sure everyone's curious what are you working on now? What's your next project?
0: Uh, I'm working on something pretty different, uh, at least as far as the region uh, i'm I'm living in the Midwest now and i'm I'm doing a Midwestern project. Uh, so I'm looking at uh, Meskwaki and Sauk, uh Indians, or sometimes more commonly known as the Sac and Fox. Um, two groups that have a very interconnected history, um, but they had to move around a lot as they were impacted by uh, European colonialism. Uh, there were the French fought a major war with the uh, with the Meskwaki called the Fox Wars, uh, a series of big battles and that forced Meskwaki to move from Wisconsin to Illinois and then you have probably most famously for Americans, you have uh, Black Hawk War, uh, which forced the Sokka and Mesquaki to move to Iowa and then they have to move to Kansas. Uh, but what I want to look at is as they're going through all these migrations, these somewhat forced migrations, uh, how do they adapt to the environmental changes that they have to go through? Uh, and how do they use their knowledge of the environment to um, to shape their strategies as they're moving around. Because uh, they they're pushed out of areas, but they do get to choose where they move to, at least until the sort of very end of the story when the United States just ships them off to Kansas and then Oklahoma. But for a while there, uh, over a couple of centuries, they they get to choose where they're going. And I think it's really fascinating to see the environmental strategies that they use and um, really the the diversity of the resources that they draw upon um, in these places so it's kind of continuing the story of adaptation, but it's in a completely different context, a completely different group and a completely different region
1: mhm mm-hmm. but yeah there there are there do seem to be some threads there that connect you know adaptation and kind of how how people are changed, I think by by their environment and and the stresses in the environment. That's ah, so fascinating. Well, uh, this has been great. Uh, Brian, thank you very much. Sounds like uh, some interesting work for you coming up and uh, cattle colonialism is now in paperback. Is that right? Great. So uh, it's, it's a terrific book. It was a quick read for me. And I think that uh, anyone with an interest in environmental history will find it, find it very interesting. So uh, thank you very much for being on the show today um, really enjoyed talking to you so uh, hope we can uh, we can connect again at some point
0: yeah thanks again for
1: having me Sure you're quite welcome okay well uh, that's all for for the moment so uh, thanks very much and uh, we'll uh, we'll talk to you later. Well, we've gone from Hawaiian cowboys to Argentinian pirates and California vaqueros and a lot in between. That was really wonderful. Um, want to thank Ryan Fisher for his uh, fantastic interview and uh, thank University of North Carolina Press for uh, providing me with this book, Cattle Colonialism and Environmental History of the Conquest of California and Hawaii really, really interesting environmental history. I think all the fans of environmental history, uh, or history in general, are really going to uh, like this book. Uh, I couldn't put it down. I thought it was a story of uh, a lot of importance and uh, surprised me in a lot of ways. So, Thank uh, Ryan Fisher. He was really great. I uh, hope you check out the book. Uh, again, my name is Sean Munger, and I have another podcast on Um, iTunes called Second Decade History Podcast and you can also see it on uh, that website, seconddecade.net I'm going to be back on New Books Network uh, Environmental Studies fairly shortly with another interview I don't know, uh, I've got a couple in the works uh, but more environmental history some other interesting people researching some really, really interesting things so I hope you join us and we will see you next time Thanks